You're listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. For someone to explain. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. All right, welcome to episode number 38 of the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and joining me today is Daniel O'Brien. Daniel Hales from Australia originally and is just finishing up as the attack, defense and backs coach for the Coca-Cola Red Sparks in Japan's top league. Before that, he's held several coaching roles in the Canterbury region of New Zealand, spent time in Dublin, Ireland and also in his hometown of Brisbane, Australia. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Daniel, so welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, no worries. Uh, you got a pretty interesting backstory from player to coach. What what was your playing career like when you when you were active? Uh, well, as a player, I can't say I, I hit the greatest heights. Uh, <laughs> I played obviously underage rugby as a kid growing up, yeah, uh, under sixes, under sevens, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I grew up in a bit of a league family, so I played a bit of league as well. Yeah. Uh, and then I got back into rugby probably when I was nineteen or twenty. Okay. Just played a lot of grade rugby, um, you know second, third grade type thing, uh, but it was sort of coaching that grabbed me uh, pretty early and, and overtook the, the playing aspirations, and I guess from my mid-20s, I focused more on my coaching than my playing. Right, right. So like that early coaching pathway, like when did it start? Um, what, what were the kind of groups you started with, and, and what, were, what were some of your early experiences like? Well, I started uh, coaching... In 2003, um, I'd played the, the previous season with the University of Queensland and had sort of had these aspirations to, to go into coaching uh, and I was lucky to be put through an ARU Level 1 coaching course uh, by both the University of Queensland and uh, Kenmore Bears in Brisbane. Okay. And uh, they put me through that so I could take on the under-16 team at the Kenmore Bears uh, which was a, a great experience. The first night, I still remember that training session. I think we had six players on a Friday night uh, <laughs> down, awesome. down at Kenmore. So you have all these plans in place, and then very early from the first session, I realised you have to adjust to what you have. Uh, so that was that was a lot of fun. And yeah. that first year, I, I took on uh, the Kenmore Bears, and I was really lucky, uh, very fortunate to get a, a role with the uh, Brisbane West team in the uh, Queensland State Championships. Yeah. So that was probably the start of my, uh, I guess, thirst for coaching and, and moving into representative roles uh, from that first season. And it was kind of one of those things that if you put your hand up and you're willing to do the time, uh, people are more than happy to give you the opportunities. Yeah, that's great. And I think, yeah, if you're exactly that volunteer kind of ethos, it can be pretty rare in, in any kind of sporting environment. But if you're if you're keen and, and want to get stuck in, people will push you in the right direction, no doubt. And what um after that, like first year, what what were kind of some of the the areas you really thought, oh, I got to change that, or some some things? If you had your time again, you'd you'd do it differently. Well, I think uh, coaching is really about uh, continuing to learn, and I've taken that philosophy from probably from day one. Mm. Uh, it's, even coaching an under-16 level at, at a club in Brisbane, the players still know if you, if you know what you know or you don't. Um, yeah. you, can't, you can't pretend. So it was one of those things of admitting 
but you don't know things uh, or that you need to, to allow them to, to add to the game plan or, or um, help you out in any way. And I think for me it was I focused on skill development from the very early point, mm-hmm. uh, and that helped me get into roles um, with the, the Queensland Rugby Regional College, uh, coaching their sort of top 17-, 18-year-olds and uh, uh, helping develop those skills. So it became something that that was something specific I could I could learn and control and develop myself and, and apply to a team because I'm a, uh, a big believer that skill base really determines how well your team goes. Uh, if you don't have the skills, then obviously it's going to make it tough on uh, on game day. And so I, I really focused on that and, and getting the opportunities with different school teams and uh, representative teams and club teams. You just it, It's the hours you spend coaching and, and assessing yourself after each session and, and saying whether that actually worked or it didn't work. Um, I think that's it's really important that you're constantly looking to improve and, and watching other people and, and learning uh, what fits for you and what doesn't. Uh, and also helped me then, I became a teacher uh, in 2005, so it kind of helped me put together my ability to talk to people and, and control a session, uh, the planning that goes behind it. So I think in those early days, it was just more about getting as many hours as I can on the field. Yeah, okay, great. And I like that, that idea of reflecting on, on sessions. I think I think as coaches, like that's probably an area like we do all the planning before, but what do we do actually afterwards? Did you have like a process that you went through, or was it more organic? Uh, probably more organic, and I think the idea that when you finish the training session, you can get a buzz from a good session, and mm. and I think that was the reflection of saying, well, that worked or that didn't work, or I'll definitely do that again, and and also I had the opportunity to uh, coach. Uh, a number of situations where I did the same, I guess, take for example, the same drill and I had three different groups within an hour do that drill mm-hmm. and they worked differently each time. Uh, so it's it's assessing what worked for each group and, and picking up cues from different players as to, to how to best manage uh, a drill and, and how to bring the best out of each player. Yeah, right. Okay, great. And so, so after those first kind of early... Uh you know, coaching experiences. You you did a bit of traveling. You went to went to Dublin. You went to New Zealand. What what was that pathway like? What kind of coaching qualifications did you pick up along the way? Uh, well, in Australia, before I left, I I did my level one and level two courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess when I left Australia, it was a little bit sort of looking back. Sometimes you think, oh, was it the right decision? Because I was starting to get a bit of a foot in the door and underage rugby and had aspirations to work towards maybe Queensland teams uh, as a coach mm-hmm. and then deciding to, to lift up and go to Dublin uh, obviously can sometimes thwart your plans. But uh, once I got there and I, I managed to get into a, a club over there, uh, it's a famous club in, in Ireland, Lansdowne uh, Football Club. Yeah. And I was, I was really lucky to coach their reserve grade team. So I, I, I managed to see uh, some good level of rugby over there. Oh, that's great. Uh, and coached their second team to a couple of victories, which was nice. Uh, and then I moved over to um, – in Ireland, I moved to the school that I was teaching at to coach. Uh, we did the Junior Cup, and I was also lucky to get some uh, spot coaching with the Leinster youth set up. So oh, it was just a matter of seeing mm. all different coaches and different ways of doing things. And, and I think it's – no matter where you go in the world, you've just got to put your best foot forward and, and take any opportunity that comes and make yourself known – uh, and and keep developing, uh, and then obviously I went to 
to New Zealand, uh, landed in Christchurch, and my first year there, I arrived during the World Cup actually for uh, in 2011, which is obviously not great memories for the Wallabies. <laughs> you would have been really popular. <laughs> yeah, especially I, I remember walking home after the semi-final with a oh, mate of mine, and thanks <laughs> thanks to George Grieg and all we could hear yeah. was four more years, boys. <laughs> Yeah, I don't envy your position in that one. I got to I got to hide in the basement uh, by myself, so that was that was a way better option. <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was my welcome to New Zealand. So that was that was good. But the next year, I managed to uh, get a role with the Christchurch Football Club uh, Premier Colts, and Great. I was also working at uh, Christchurch uh, Boys High School, coaching their second fifteen and teaching there as well. So I I landed uh, pretty well in New Zealand and just put my head down and again as many hours coaching as you can and uh, again I've been very fortunate in my career to to pick up little roles here and there and that following year I ended up with uh, the Christchurch Football Club Division 1 team uh, where I was there for three years so again you keep stepping up levels and I remember I was always probably in a bit of a hurry to become a professional coach or or to get to that next level mm-hmm. uh, and and you you put a bit of pressure on yourself you're constantly wanting to win and, and wanting to to get that next representative appointment or whatever comes before you. But I remember getting to the Div, uh, the Div 1 team at Christchurch and actually sitting back and reflecting and relaxing and thinking, you know what, this is this is a good level and I'm proud to have gotten to this point and whatever happens from here is a bonus. So, uh, yeah, I was pretty content at that point and, and I remember the first days of training there and some good caliber of players who had played the likes of the Crusaders and Canterbury ITM Cup uh, so it was good learning again for myself uh, to to experience, and especially New Zealand rugby. It is, I guess, as much as it pains Australians to say, <laughs> it is it is uh, the home of rugby. Really, when it yeah, comes absolutely. to absolutely yeah. uh, ha- the quality of of players, even at club level, mm. uh, they're just they're just hard workers. Especially down in Canterbury, it's a bit more of a country area, and um, they're, they're quite tough. And and any given day, uh, game day, we'd play. Um, I remember. My team lining out against the likes of um, of All Blacks, Don Bird playing against us, wow. um, John Tafua for the Crusaders. Every week there were quality players, and and in even one week uh, after Richie McCaw's six month layoff, he actually came back and played for my club team uh, for a game to get himself back into to All Black um, fitness. So it was it's just one of those things that you get to see the the quality players that are around at even at club level. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that must have been a huge learning experience. And, you know, from there you went on to coaching professionally. And I, I think I had to think that's kind of one of the things reasons I wanted to get you on the show was it's it's just a great story, you know. Like you, you come from a, a grade-level club playing background, not a, not an international, not a super rugby player. But, you know, you you blazed a trail and got got your way into a professional coaching setup in uh, in Japan and, Kind of, kind of gives us all hope, you know. <laughs> so, um, what? Um, how'd, how'd that? How'd that go from there? Uh, from from going from uh, New Zealand to a professional coaching position in uh, Japan. I think it's it's a funny thing because I, I had that same opinion. I was always researching coaches and seeing what their pathway was and and how they got to where they they did, and always sort of thinking of that next step. And I think. If you give yourself a goal and, and you work towards it tires, tire, tirelessly, mm. uh, you can you can achieve you know those goals that you set yourself. And and as I said before, it comes down to reflecting on what you've done and, and where you're wanting to head. And, and those things change. Um, 
but also putting your hand up for any opportunity. And, you know, I was lucky to get a bit of uh, some opportunities with the Canterbury Metro and Canterbury Colts teams um, that have quality players coming through. And, and then uh, just at the start of last year, before I got the, uh, the role with the Red Sparks in Japan, I was with the Crusader Knights as their apprentice coach. So, again, learning off professional coaches, uh, seeing professional players, how they perform, what type of things they're looking at within a game, it just helps your own learning. And, and I guess um, there was a coach who used to uh, coach at Christchurch Football Club and is now uh, the assistant coach at the Crusaders. Uh, I know um, being in a room when he, he mentioned that um, just because you're not getting paid, it doesn't mean you're not professional. And I think yeah, that's, no, that's a good really the way you need to, to approach these things that doesn't matter if you're a professional or not, if you, or, sorry, if you're getting paid or not. If you have your professional standards, then that's all that matters. Uh, so I think it's it's a matter of making sure you're well planned and and know where you're going and and you take the steps to constantly improve. Then eventually, even if if you want it to happen a little bit sooner, eventually it does does happen. No, oh, that's great, and uh, yeah, some good good tips in there for sure. Okay, and so so you get to Japan. What's a what's a bit of a general description of Japanese rugby in terms of divisions and number number of teams and those kind of things? Uh, Japanese rugby is is quite unique and and I was told that coming over here and 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 you can take it on board but once you get here you really see quite an interesting setup uh the top league is made up of 16 teams that are company owned uh, okay so you yep. don't there's only there's only one team that has a place name to it uh that's the Munakata Sunex Blues uh that are just up the road here in in Fukuoka uh the rest of them like the team I was with is company based so I was with Coca-Cola Red Sparks uh, so it's it's company based as much as it's a professional setup and there is uh, quite decent budgets when it comes to uh, the, the the clubs actually participating in the top league uh, I think there's only one team that is fully professional the rest of the teams their players actually work during the day and then train in the afternoon yeah right um, and then obviously teams will have their foreign foreign players come and join the squads and and uh, they, they're the only fully fully professional players in the squads. Right, oh, that's really interesting. And like, so what? What's your in in competition in season? What 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 would your week look like? Uh, yeah. So if it's uh, in competition, we've got a game on the on the Saturday. We have games on Saturday or Sunday, but uh, most games on a Saturday. Uh, Monday would be a recovery from the previous week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so players obviously go to work uh, in the mornings whether they work in the office or vending area or whatever it might be within the company. And then uh, we have team meeting at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and okay. then they have recovery after that. So it could be either a light gym session. Uh, we'll usually have a team clarity session and a units clarity session as well, but they're on the field for no longer than about 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tuesday we step things up a little bit. Uh, so we have our team meeting. Every team meeting's at 2 o'clock. Okay. Uh, Team meeting at 2 o'clock and then usually uh, we're on the field then at 3 o'clock um, and the intensity of the session has stepped up, uh, obviously having recovered after a couple of days. And I know it's funny, we when, sort of in the club world, we, we think that Tuesday is our big session because mm. Thursday we need to be lighter. Um, but I was really fortunate this year to have uh, Nick Gill was a spot coach with the Red Sparks for the last couple of years. Right. Yeah. And Nick Gill's the strength and, strength and conditioning head coach with the All Blacks. Mm. And so uh, our week is very much structured around 
uh, his knowledge and understanding of having worked with the All Blacks for many years. Yeah. Uh, so it was invaluable insight into how do you how you run uh, a program. And the thing that probably changed for us a little bit was our biggest physical um, uh, in terms of contact and, and intense day for running was actually the Thursday. Right. So we had uh, more contact and more running uh, at higher intensities on a Thursday, but for a shorter period of time. Uh, because really when it came down to it, on the Tuesday, the players hadn't recovered fully from the, the game on the Saturday. So to get the best out of them, it, uh, Tuesdays were actually a little bit lighter than a Thursday. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And, uh, mm. you know, that, that player load so important. And uh, to and, come and from someone like his uh, stature, is, that's huge. And that's something probably that uh, Japanese rugby is still coming to terms with a little bit. You hear some horror stories from years past about... Uh, two or three hour training sessions, uh, <laughs> which the players sort of tend to back up that that's that's what has previously happened. And, and I know there are some teams that are still perhaps going a little bit over the top in terms of time on feet uh, on a Thursday and a Friday. Uh, we we tried to manage that and uh, to the point where after training sessions, I would sit down with our strength and conditioning coach and look at the GPS results and uh, I'd get in trouble if I pushed the players too hard on a particular day, mm. uh, if their training was too intense or uh, whether I didn't push them hard enough. So it was when it came to, as we were speaking before, about self-reviewing of a session, every day I was basically being told if I was spot on or pushing it too hard or, or not enough in preparation for that week. So um, those type of things that I guess you have a little bit more time to consider when you're working full-time uh, just adds to the the element of, of preparing a session. Yeah, right. So, um, so they were they were doing rugby specific stuff just uh, twice a week, or were there three sessions? So, yeah, the Monday, as I said, the Monday was clarity. So okay, we would yeah. have we would have reviewed the uh, the game on the Saturday, done some video review, uh, and then started to preview what we wanted to do this against the the opposition that week. And the Monday session was about preparing for that following game. Right. And then the Tuesday was quite specific, a little bit more skill-based, uh, say we need to do a little bit of work on our ruck um, uh, skills, and we may have done that. Um, but it was very much skill-based and some team elements in there on a Tuesday. Wednesday was off. Um, the t- the non-members, so the, the players, we had 49 members in our squad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the players who weren't selected that week uh, were usually not training on a Wednesday, either doing skills or gym work. Okay. And, and then a Thursday was our, our big session and putting together, obviously, our unit plans and our, and our team uh, direction. And then Friday was the captain's run in the morning and then we usually uh, flew or caught the Shinkansen to where we were playing that, that afternoon. And then the Saturday we played and got back into it again on the Sunday, reviewed games, uh, personally reviewed those games on the, on the Sunday and then all players were back in on the Monday. So right. that was our week. Oh, great. Oh, that sounds... Uh... Sounds amazing, and um, you know, it sounds like uh, you would have got a lot of, you know, takeaways from that in, in your own education as a coach. What what were some of those kind of key learnings that you've taken away from your time in Japan? Oh, I don't think we've got that many hours for me to, to sit down and tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes uh, when you when you're coaching, you get to a level of being confident in what you know and mm-hmm. and what you're about as a coach, but you've also got to be open to evolving and and learning and and knowing that um you're not there yet and i think that's 
probably true for any coach at any level. Um, and and I guess also you don't know what you don't know. Uh, so when I came over here, I have my philosophies when it comes to coaching and, and, and my, my key focuses. Um, but learning off some of the players, we had uh, a number of players who played super rugby in our squad and, and just talking to them informally and, and helping uh, get those ideas adapted into our team uh, probably helped me understand rugby even to a greater degree than I had previously. And, and that comes with being exposed to, to higher levels of knowledge and, and just having the time to, to review uh, or preview teams that you're playing uh, and getting the insight of those players who have played um, over 50 Super Rugby games. You know, they, they have that knowledge and I think it's important that uh, you take as much information on as, as you can. And um, so my learnings from... Um, the technical aspects of attack and defence to um, how to run um, a week's training session to even the GPS, as I said before, the GPS um, statistics and, and how to plan a session based on what you need to do to get the best performance out of a player on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about that on the Monday and what you're doing on the Monday, let alone um, the Saturday itself. So, yeah, my learnings come from probably the planning side of things, the tactical knowledge uh, and also something I'm, I'm really big on uh, is creating an environment. Uh, and I think that's why everyone plays rugby, really, is that, yeah, that mateship exactly. and that, yeah. that, that bonded feel within a team. And that's probably uh, something that I see as, uh, as a big thing for me to, to be able to, to bring to a team. But uh, Japan is quite unique in that uh, those environments are a little bit more difficult to create. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just It's just a different... Uh, different side of things here uh, but you try and bring it in as much as you can uh, with a little bit of fun at trainings etc so I think we were moderately successful there. Oh, that's great and that you, you had an interesting role there you, you coach both defense and attack and I think I think that's you know that's got to be challenging and I think it's a challenge that a lot of you know, coaches out there face mainly out of necessity. How did you approach that, and were there any like strategies that, that worked for you in terms of kind of separating one from the other? Well, when I first got the role, it was uh, primarily as backs coach, and mm-hmm. um, getting up here, kind of very quickly realizing that I probably need to step into those areas, right. uh, which was extremely exciting for myself, coming from uh, club level to moving into a professional environment where I was now in charge of attack, defence, many things. So it was it was quite exciting. Uh, busy, obviously, because you're looking <laughs> at games, previewing and... Three times. Um, <laughs> yeah, reviewing kind of attack, defence, backs. And there are elements that I probably didn't do as well uh, because you almost have to, you know, things, you only have a certain amount of time and, and, and you're trying to get through it all. But... Uh, it's really important when you are, especially on the field, and probably the one tip I'd give is if you're, if you're looking at defence and you've got a drill, obviously you're going to have attackers in there. I remember in my early days I'd probably slip into that element of coaching both areas mm. of attack and defence within that drill, whereas yeah. uh, now I'm very much focused when I have a particular drill, I'm just commenting, just, just focusing on the defence side of things, if that's what I'm looking at. And the other coaches that we have there will will monitor the attack and, and give subtle tips to individual players. But when we're doing a drill or, or uh, a period of time on 
one particular area that we we stay focused on that and and simple messages too uh, I think would be key in that that whole process when it's you know a pretty pretty busy kind of situation going on right that's right and the other side of it I guess you've got to bring into it is that uh, being in Japan uh, my Japanese is uh, <laughs> is quite limited it's improved as the season's gone on oh, that's but great you you're also working with an interpreter, so uh, you're trying to get through a number of things and 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 uh, provide as much feedback and detail to individual players. But you're also working with one interpreter, uh, so that's just another little element that you get to add to the uh, the the scenario, which is is quite exciting. Uh, you get to to push yourself and and probably think to as you said before those basics that are really important. You can't just waffle on. You've really got to be quite to the point about what you're going to say to a player. Yeah, and that's, that raises a really good point. We had Bernard Jackman on uh, last episode, and he, he relayed a story about um, Joe Schmidt and his time uh, when he was in uh, Claremont Avern and how because of his limited French, he really had to thin out the message and what are the key points. And, and that actually, according to, to Bernie, improved his coaching in terms of delivering key messages would you is that kind of how you feel about that yeah I'd agree uh, I generally try not to waffle when I'm coaching but mm. everyone has that element of of knowing what they they know and wanting to get every detail across to players or uh, other coaches but I think it's important that if you can identify yourself what the key key point is that you're trying to say if you can do that in as uh, minimal language as possible then it, it helps the player whether they're speaking English with you or it's in France or it's in Japan. Um, yeah, the key really is trying to get across your point as quickly and as uh, easily as possible. Okay, so uh, just on your your coaching, what's your favourite part of the game to coach, and what are some areas you like to that you think you can get you get the best out of your players uh, in the way you set up your your sessions? Uh, well, I guess. As I said to you earlier, I, I probably based myself on skills when I was coming mm-hmm. through from an early age because that was something that I I could identify and I knew I could work on with players and it, it had a very real effect on teams' performance. So skills is definitely something I, I find important, the basic skills of catch-pass and um, defensive tracking, footwork. Uh, those type of skills, I think, are extremely important and, and are valuable too. To individuals and to teams. So that's probably an area I started with that I loved. Uh, and then as you learn more, I think the idea of attack and defence, uh, it, it's great because it's it's a little bit of a chess game with oppositions. How are we going to attack? How are we going to set ourselves up? What are we going to try and do to, to outfox the opposition? Mm-hmm. Uh, but probably, I guess if I was looking back this season, uh, I would suggest that um, my favourite at the moment is defence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it probably always has been a little bit of an element of me that has loved the idea of defence and coaching it because for me, you you know a team's heart and, and, and spirit based on their defence. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it doesn't always have to be the most technically correct or tactically um, smart defence. If they're putting their bodies on the line, it, it says something about an individual and, and about a team. Uh, so I think as much as you can get um, the excitement out of, of coaching defence, in the end when you walk off that field you know you've put in a solid effort and you're making your tackles and working together, uh, I think you've done your job as a defence coach and, and, and I think that's what rallies players. Usually a team will sort of lift itself out of a bit of a, a funk if 
if someone's put a nice hit in or if there's been 20-odd phases defended or a defensive scrum has, has worked tirelessly and, and, and got you the ball back, it's, it's those defensive measures that I think uh, are the ones that lift teams. So for me, you know, I think defence is something that's becoming a real uh, exciting area for me to coach. Yeah, and I think um, I agree. I, I love it too. And um, it's also a reflection of the team's culture and their togetherness. And um, you hear Warren Gatland on a few um, videos going around. Where he talks about, uh, you know, the best teams do the things that require no talent better than anyone else. And, you know, defense is a perfect example of that. Getting off the line when you're tired and just, you know, putting your body on the line. They're, they're, they're perfect examples of that. And, if a team's tight and together and and there's a really strong bond there, that, that really comes out in their defence. That's right. And I think then you can put the, the systems and structures together that, that makes them even better. And, but it really does come down to that getting up off the ground and working hard for your mates mm. uh, and doing everything you can to, uh, to defend your line. And I'm actually taken back to one of our players who technically uh, his tackling technique is – uh, it's quite a stray, but he. Uh, <laughs> there was one game where they were literally the opposition were about to score, and he's somehow come from behind the ruck and head butted the ball <laughs> about two inches off the ground as the player was about to put it over the line to score. And that to me said that he'd do anything to to save a try for the team. And uh, I think it speaks volumes of his character and and what he was willing to do for the team. I love it. You'd have fifteen of him if he could. <laughs> Definitely. Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, um, and if someone was to come and watch one of your sessions, what, what, what are some of the things they're going to see and hear? Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer, coming from a uh, school teacher background, of, of ensuring that the players understand and show their understanding, not just nod their head and, and yep, we know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I like to question the players, not in a, a negative way or in their face style, but more getting them to, I guess, relay the information that I've previously spoken of or, or identified some of the key points that we're trying to take out of a particular drill or a session that we've, we've completed. So I like to, to get the players to take a lot of ownership. Uh, and I also like uh, training sessions that have an element of fun in it. There's good joking, good mm. laughter, but they're hardworking at the same time and that they're high tempo. So as much as you can be restricted by the certain days that you're training because of a game coming up, etc. You can you can shorten the session but still have a, a good tempo of a of a session that means that there's not a lot of standing around uh, talking or messing about. You're actually getting the job done as quickly as possible because uh, I'm a firm believer of you know if you're out there for longer than a bit over an hour, then you're probably wasting your time. Yeah, so you're saying uh, less volume but same intensity. Yeah, so. Obviously, um, no matter what the session is, I, I like it when players say to get their fitness rather than just doing lengths, they, they'll, they'll jog between drills. There's mm-hmm. less standing around chatting. So I, I try and limit any conversa- or any talking I have to the group to one minute, two minutes max rather than standing there, especially when you're coaching, say, on a, uh, at club and it's nighttime and middle of winter and you see some coaches have the, the players standing around for five minutes while they explain everything they know about rugby, I think uh, it can be kind of detrimental to the, the team itself. Whereas yeah. if, you, if you can kind of keep the tempo up, 
talking on the go. That's something I learned probably a couple of years ago um, from a couple of coaches in, in the Crusader region that you can do your coaching on the go and be just as, as beneficial. You don't always have to come, get the players into you. You don't uh, always have to sort of demand attention. You can, mm. be, you can have the session to be free-flowing. Uh, and I also like to, you know, obviously to do that, you need to have a, a well-planned session. Uh, and know in yourself how how it links together and what your focus is and what you're trying to achieve. So if you can do that, you can you can have that fun element in it. Uh, you can have that high tempo and you can you can force the players really to to show their understanding of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and I think I think on that too, I think getting players to coach players is uh, a great way of maximising that time on the field as well. Uh, definitely, especially if you're in a. And it doesn't matter if you're in a. Uh, a super rugby setup, I'm sure, or, or a club setup. You've always got players that are uh, who have the experience at high levels, and uh, I think as much as as coaches, we see our role is really important. I think sometimes it's the players who have been there, done that, who pass on that information to the other players that is probably more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see my role as a coach really to direct uh, our group, our playing group of 49 players. Um, down a path of how I want the team to play and a style I want them to play, uh, an environment that I want to create uh, for them to be happy and and to be excelling uh, and and to be positive. And I think the players play a big part of that. And for instance, when it comes to backs coaching, uh, very rare that I'll talk to my unit and, and say that this is the the move that I want them to use. I I very much give it to the backs to to decide. Well, what are, what are our uh, strike moves? from set piece because I think they're the ones who probably enjoy it more than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're the ones who get to, to do it and see it and they all have their favorite moves. So I think it's important for them to take ownership of that area. Uh, and same can be said when you're, you're coaching uh, backs, uh, sorry, uh, attack or defense, there's always someone who's got an idea. And as long as, as a coach, you can uh, bring all those ideas together and, and keep, keep the whole team moving the direction you want it to. I think that's, that's probably the biggest thing as a coach. You, you're moving everyone in that direction you want them to go. Uh, and it, if you can get as much information and experience and voices from everyone in the group, then I think you're better for it. That, that's awesome. And I've, I've uh, really enjoyed uh, chatting to you about this stuff. And um, we, all, we always end the, the show with the same final four questions. Uh, when, you, when you were a kid growing up in... Uh, Sunny Queensland, who was uh, one of your favourite rugby players going around? Well, funnily enough, as I said before, I, I kind of grew up as a young fella following rugby league, so mm-hmm. my favourite player was actually Greg Alexander for the oh, yeah. mighty Penrith Panthers. Oh, yeah, he's a beauty. Um, but also, uh, obviously, as I got further into rugby, George Gregg and John yeah. Eels, um, yeah. and, and George Smith, who I was really lucky to actually coach against uh, this year. He was playing for Suntory. Oh, and, fantastic. Uh, so that was a highlight for me. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, no, some some great names there, absolutely. Um, okay, and what about now? Who are some of your favourite players going around? Uh, he's not really on the international scene anymore, but uh, I really enjoyed watching Conrad Smith play mm-hmm. uh, for the All Blacks. Yeah. He just he's a smart player, good defensive reading, and and I also like the fact that uh, he's a good character outside of of rugby. He's mm. he's done his uh, law studies, and um, you know he's he's got a good head on those shoulders and. So I, I, I like I like following players who are good characters as well as good players. Yeah. Um, and with that in mind, a player I coached this year, uh, who was actually the uh, Japanese sevens captain at the Rio Olympics, um, Tsuru Yusaku, who uh, 
played for me this year for the Coca-Cola Red Sparks is a real character player, a, a quiet leader, but body on the line every single week. Um, you know, he's he's another player that I think uh, he, he's getting a little bit older now, and he's not necessarily going to go and play Super Rugby, but he's he's a player that um, I have a huge amount of respect for. Oh, that's awesome! Fantastic. All right, and what are, what about coaches? Who's a who's a high profile coach you you look up to and like like what they're doing? Uh, probably the one that springs to mind for me would be uh, Tabai Matson. Yep. Um, the reason for Tabai is that uh, he finished obviously playing, uh, but he didn't just jump into a, a, a professional role straight away. I know he he did a bit of uh, coaching in Queensland, University of Queensland, and uh, then kind of got his big break when he came back to Canterbury and, and was the assistant coach of the Canterbury ITM Cup, then became the head coach and then became the assistant coach of Crusaders, and now he's the Bath head coach in England. And yeah, he uh, he's a very very smart man when it comes to building environments. And uh, I'm always all ears when he's talking to a group because I think he just uh, has a really good knack of 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 uh, getting players to play the way he wants them to, and he understands the environment. So yeah, I think uh, he's someone I like to follow and and see how he's going in in the future. Oh, awesome! And what about what about someone who's in the grassroots, kind of digging away and uh, just doing really good stuff for rugby? Uh, probably a coach at uh, Christchurch Football Club, who was uh, my assistant when I was doing the Div One team there. Yep. He was previously doing reserve grade and and uh, came up to do Div One with me. Uh, Terence Hunkin. Okay. He uh, he's just a, a real hard worker and has a has a great eye for the game and uh, just loves it. Um, does planning and, and his training sessions, uh, some of the drills he comes up with are fantastic. So I think, yeah, he's someone who toils away uh, and is a real uh, servant of the game. Oh, and he, he has to be a good bloke if he was uh, comfortable being an assistant coach to an Aussie in uh, New Zealand. Yeah, exactly. I think they might have had to pay him <laughs> for that one. <laughs> All right. Well, I've, uh, like I said earlier, I really enjoyed uh, having this chat with you, Daniel, and, um, you know, wish you all the best uh, with your future coaching career and uh, just want to want to say a massive thanks for, for taking time out of your, your your day to come on the show and uh, share your experiences. So thanks very much. No, thank you very much for the opportunity. And, uh, yeah, it's been great. Thanks. All right. No worries. All right. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at RugbyCoachSCNR or via the website at TheRugbyCoachesCorner.com. Until next time, keep sharing ideas to make the game better.